Trans Tannic, a show about uh, transgressive cinema from a transgender lens. My name is Aoife Josie Baker. And I am Louise Ward. And I have to say, I've got some qualms with the transgressive <laughs> cinema through a transgender lens, because I think that in order for us to do this project, we have to kind of like break down and define both terms, because yeah. as you know, Aoife, I have a lot of issues with what is transgressive and if we're going to be going to this podcast i kind of want to like chart the idea of what transgressive cinema looks like and then the whole idea of like transgender lens like okay we're both trans women watching these movies so i mean like that's our lens through which to watch them however i am curious about the interplay of that with this type of cinema because of the fact that like i don't know if there there's no like monolithic trans lens through which we're viewing these movies. 100%. And I think that's like the major, one of the major reasons why we wanted to do this, right? Is like having this sense of creating a new lens, creating a new way to approach art in in a fundamentally queer way that isn't the ways that have been given to us, that aren't the existing. Yeah, and like, I think it's interesting because I think that Especially in, like, the queer art world, there has been such a, like, retreat from, like, transgressive works. So, I mean, like, that was kind of what was exciting to me about this prospect is that, like, I grew up engaging with severely fucked up movies. (laughs) And because of that, I'm a very fucked up person. And I connect with other transsexuals who are also intensely fucked up and I really enjoy those relationships. Those are a lot of the people that I collaborate with the most closely, yourself included. Um, But to like try to like root that back through my own personal history and then subjecting you to that and hoping that you understand me better and where I'm coming from as this like crazy fucked up transsexual filmmaker is kind of an exciting idea. Absolutely. And that's kind of one of the things that we wanted to do. And that's the main hook here is I haven't really gotten into the grim shit. Like, into the, like, deep, dark shit. Because, like, when I was having my main, like, movies phase, sort of, I was, like, 12, 13. Like, I didn't really have the guts for a lot of the really hard stuff yet. And then by the time I was, like, high school, uni age, like, I'm living a real life. I'm doing drugs. I'm going to parties. I'm reading books. I don't have time for all this. And also, I'm way too fucking pretentious by this point to be willing to engage with this trash. Yeah, like, you're, like, watching, like, Hausu, ironically, being like, oh, this is so quirky. Never, never ironically with Hausu. <laughs> it's never been ironic. But, but like, you're coming into, into these types of movies from, like, a cult cinema fan angle. 100%, yeah. Whereas, like, I grew up, and when I was, like, 11, 12 years old, I was attracted to movies that would fuck me up. Yeah. Because, like, my sort of, like, origin story is I had gotten really into like horror literature, primarily Stephen King, Mm. because I was like seeing like scary horror movies as a kid and my parents weren't like super into letting me watch that type of stuff. And I asked my dad, oh, what's the scariest movie you've ever seen? Because I was like chasing this like this high of like scary movies since I was like a a very young kid. I, I, I really liked being scared and pushing my limits and challenging myself. 
And my dad says to me, oh, well, that's The Shining, which like is really funny for your dad to say that The Shining is the scariest movie, like when you consider what it's... that movie's about. Um, it's like, dad, you got some like deeply like internal anxieties about your family like <laughs> yeah scarier than anything you're going to see yeah 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 like your dad saying the shining's the scariest movie is kind of like what part of that movie scares you dad <laughs> like there's very different outcomes based on like what gets under your skin and like my dad wouldn't let me watch the shining so i said well hey if I read The Shining, no way that my imagination isn't scarier than whatever's in this actual movie. So I read The Shining and I ended up buying this Stanley Kubrick box set of films in order to watch The Shining. I convinced my dad to buy it for me. And we decided to watch through all those movies. And I watched most of them by myself with the exception of Eyes Wide Shut, which I watched yeah. with my dad, which in I mean, incredible. formative experience. Um, my dad was kind of like, I don't know if you should be watching this. And then we just watched it. I think my dad fell asleep 10 minutes in. I think he woke up for the orgy scene. Okay, good. Which you're supposed to Perfect. do. Um, yeah. that, you know, that's the appeal. Yeah. I'm sure for my dad it was at least. <laughs> um, basically what, what changed my life was watching A Clockwork Orange. And it was specifically the scene when Alex beats the woman to death with a penis statue. Yeah. And it changed the trajectory of my entire life because during that scene, Kubrick cuts to this like pop art portrait of a woman screaming on the wall yeah. instead of showing the impact of the violence. And that like cracked open this whole idea of like, oh my God, this is what cinema is capable of. Like the, the implication of violence was so much more shocking to me yeah. than violence itself. So I was like, I need to find more movies like A Clockwork Orange. So this is my descent into hell moment because it's the internet in like the early 2000s. And yep. it's like an unmitigated space of just like evil. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I go onto the IMDb message boards because, you know, where else was I going to go? That was like a pretty mainstream website at the time. And I'm on the A Clockwork Orange message board and someone says, more disturbing movies like this. Yeah. Well, the thing is, what people are going to say is disturbing in the early 2000s is like pretty far reaching. Yeah. And it's going to reach, especially through the internet, people are going to be trying to kind of show their bona fides of like, oh yeah, I've yeah. seen this. Yeah. I don't know if any of these people had actually watched these movies or if they were just sharing <laughs> like the most fucked up they've heard of. But of course, I saw Guinea Pig 2, Flowers of Flesh and Blood. And... When I saw that name on there, I had just learned how to torrent movies. I'm like, for context, 11 years old. Yeah. And I torrent Guinea Pig 2. I put it on my iPod video and I watch it on my bus ride to school. Yeah. My life is forever changed through this experience because not only do I, I find myself severely connecting with the content of this movie, mm. but it opens up this window into what cinema is capable of. And through that, I remember... One of the things that was most interesting to me was before I watched any of these intense movies, I would read the synopsis on IMDb. Yeah. And the thing was at that time, people were like crazy about the detail they put into synopsises. Oh, yeah. So like I would be reading like the synopsis for like Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me. And I would read that and be like, this must be the most fucked up thing Ever. And I, I vividly remember reading the description of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. And I imagined the film being a million times more extreme than when I actually saw it. I oh, was yeah. actually like, I was, I probably saw that movie when I was 12 years old and I was like underwhelmed because I had built it up so much more in my head. Yeah. But let's go back to Guinea Pig 2, which is the first movie I subjected you to today. Yeah. So 
for context as well, like my journey with this stuff was was weird in the sense that it was all like starting from basically books about movies where it was like, I had like the 1001 and these kinds of things. And you end up gravitating back to the shit that scares you and the shit that turns you on. It's got these big glossy pictures throughout the book of, you know, just random stills from each one of these films. And you end up just magnetizing into the pages that you don't want to turn. And I remember it being like, you know, the baby from Eraserhead on one and like, I think the, the, the stare in Clockwork Orange and, or actually no, it was Ludovico um, in Clockwork Orange. And then uh, this led working Casablanca Video, which was our local indie uh, in our in our neighborhood when we were kids. And that's the um, thing. You were frequencing Casablanca, which yeah. was like the very respectable yes. like mom and pop video yeah. store. And I was going to my friend's Burning Moon video, yeah. named after the Olaf Inbach movie. And that was where the fucked up shit was. Yes. Where like, like Casablanca had its share of like cult movies, but it's like you're, you're renting like... Maybe Combat Shock is, like, yeah. the most intense thing there. Whereas, like, Burning Moon was, like, the like that's where you'd rented August Underground. Yeah. So, like, going to their store, I would pick up and buy movies. So, like, you know, like, I was, like, 13 going to, like, the Calgary Comic Convention. And they yeah. had a table set up for their video store. I remember walking out with, like, Pink Flamingos and, yeah. and Guinea Pig 2 and Guinea Pig 3 and August Underground's Mortem. And I'm, like, oh, my God, I'm going to go watch these. And, like, the, the, I would subject them to all my friends. And as a matter of fact... Me and Aoife, we go all the way back to high school and like our earliest memories of each other, other than being like the two closeted transsexuals and like the gay straight alliance I founded in high school, was like me inviting Aoife over for movie nights where we would just do drugs and then I would put on the most fucked up movies in my collection. Yeah, and seeing, I think that was the first time I saw How Sue uh, was in one of these Poughkeepsie tapes was was commonly on Father's Day. Yeah, no, and it, it was like a massively educational experience at that time because again, it was the classics, the canon was the thing, and that kind of stuff. To go back to synopses, like all I had were the synopses for that stuff. Uh, I didn't even have access to a lot of it, and so I would just obsess over podcasts like this one where people would just be summarizing this shit just fixating and fixating but never quite getting there and so now i have the opportunity with your library with your piracy skills with your knowledge of what's really going to get in my head and break me um, well and, and you know what i'm curious about is like like you and i are both trannies right yeah, so like yeah, yeah. do cis people do this I'm sure some of them do. Like, I, there, there's got, like... I've heard this, yeah. Like, like, what's most interesting to me is this idea of the the taboo when it comes to these films yeah. and this idea of the exciting rush you get of not watching them. Yes. And, and that's how I think a lot of people relate to these types of movies. It's like looking at iceberg charts and being like, oh my God, yeah. I wonder what that movie is. But for me growing up, I didn't care so much about the hunt as I did when I actually watched them. Because, mm -hmm. like, Guinea Pig 2 was, like, a profound effect on me yeah. as a kid. And, like, when we were rewatching it tonight, um, I, it really took me back where I was, like, vividly remembering the sounds. And I was, like, seeing her tied up on the bed. And I'm like, man, I was copying that shot in my student films when I was tied up on the bed where I'm doing yeah. this, like, transsexual version of this. Yeah. And, like, it, 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 it's fascinating how foundational of a text that is for me and my own work. And uh, I'm kind of excited to, like, 
talk about it where you and I can kind of take a critical view of like a movie like Guinea Pig 2. Because you read the synopsis and the movie is exactly as it says on the tin. Like I, I said to you right after you watched it, I said, did it live up to the hype? Yeah, and honestly, it didn't in a lot of ways where the first 10 minutes or so of the movie I was like extremely on edge kind of knowing the rap knowing what people had said and, and I mean there's a major turning point in the movie um, when the the sort of killer turns to camera and, and says you know she's She's experiencing pleasure. She's not experiencing pain. The drugs that I've shot her full of are causing her to orgasm with every touch of my knife. And the whole thing turns for me. And it, it becomes this way more detached kind of view that I have. I'm not it's scared. Hot. I'm not scared at all anymore. You're and kind of turned on. Now, I mean, I don't know if... I don't know if I if I'm quite into what is happening there, but it is like... It becomes this morbid fascination view where you're where you're you're staring at it like, oh, interesting. Instead of instead of you know kind of like the hostile thing where they're going over each one of the tools and going, oh, what's that one gonna do? Um, yeah, I, I really I did experience that shift in the middle where I was like, oh, this is a totally different thing than yeah. that that rep makes it out to be. Exactly, and I, I'm. I was surprised watching it how turned on I was, which I know is like a, a fucking insane <laughs> thought, right? But I think that there is something about the way in which the film is this like this quest for absolute jacence yeah. that makes it kind of this like erotic experience. Because even though it's it's shot in this almost like Sadian context where mm -hmm. it's like a viewer is like, this is crazy. Yeah. And you are here is your scopophilic urge to look. Yeah. And we are going to show it in the most agonizing detail possible. Yeah. Right? What's most fascinating to me about it is to sit there and see every detail of every blow yeah. makes it almost mundane. But then we cut in for these extreme close-ups of the girl like having the blood drip as she's doing like you point out like she, she literally ahigaus at one point there's literally like a crossed eyes tongue out moment and it comes right after the line about the orgasm the movie's telling you like don't be scared anymore be turned on and it's yeah you just have this ex complete emotional shift I experienced the the film as almost kind of an invitation to submit to it, like where it is saying, I'm going to put you in this space and it's going to be a really overwhelming and unpleasant space for you to exist in. And you just have to sort of learn to let it wash over you and learn to enjoy it and learn to acknowledge what you're doing here with me. It reminds me a lot of when I started listening to noise music initially, being like an annoying 4chan teen, going on Mew and downloading like the MERS box and listening to MERS boat for hours and hours and hours, trying to get it, trying to get what people were talking about. And then one day I remember very distinctly walking around like fucking Costco or something, like my mom had taken me shopping and I was just like meandering around listening to MERS boat, <laughs> like the grocery store started getting really really turned on and i was like what's what's happening and you know i look at the cover and it's like venereology and it's like the gimp mask and i was like 
oh, this artist is doming me. They're the dom, I am the sub. This whole thing has been an invitation to just give myself over into this. And I felt a very similar thing watching Guinea Pig, which I mean, you know, both Japanese, both around the same kind of time. I'm curious about, like, what was in the air kind well, of in that. And I want to show you Masami Akita's movies. Okay, yeah. Because yeah. they fully encompass yeah. this this idea to yeah. an even greater extent in terms of, like, female jacence, uh through self-immolation. Okay. Um, like, like, he does this one great Harakiri movie that I've got, which mm. we should absolutely watch. Yeah. But it, it's interesting you talk about the, like, artist-dom... Audience-sub. Audience-sub. Because, like, I feel like to be an underground filmmaker and, to, yeah. like, to make these, these types of exploitation films is almost like this Klazowskian urge, which mm. is this, like, I am pleased with the evil I do to others because <laughs> God is pleased with the evil he does to me, which is, like, <laughs> this 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 sort of, like, resignation, this, like, Saudian impulse of just, like, I am making this at face value, and the face value is to disturb you. Yeah. And it it, 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 it is transgressive in the sense of, you're pushing the limits of yourself as a filmmaker because you're hoping that it will push the limits of an audience. And mm. the best underground films are the ones that go that extra mile to which you do not know what the limits of the filmmaker are. I think that one mm. of the greatest underground movies of all time, which is, you know, is is inarguably one of the best films ever made, is The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Absolutely. Because when you watch that film, you're like, I do not trust this filmmaker. Every second is a descent into hell that goes further and further to which you do not know that you will be able to, like, come back from what you will see next. 100%. And that was actually why when we were watching our second film, I, I asked you if the sex scenes were simulated or not, because it was like... I genuinely do not trust this person, what they're going to put in front of me at this point. Like, and both of these films very much share that quality of throwing you so far off edge that you're not even, yeah, that you have absolutely no idea where you're headed next uh, and absolutely no idea what they will do in order to achieve where they want to take you. Well, and that's um, one of the things about like the legend of Flowers of Flesh and Blood is yes. the fact that it, it people can mistake it for a snuff film. I don't think anyone who's watching it is going to actually mistake it, but it's a good myth. I mean, I mean I'm sure Steve Biro loves that that myth yeah. persisted back in the day when he was dubbing uh, tapes to sell. <laughs> but like, I, I, I want to get onto another point, which is that one of the most special things about Guinea Pig, and I think to a lesser extent the other movie we watched tonight, is that they do not have that metatextual moment where they condemn the audience. We don't get that moment of like pullback that we see in like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer or like August Underground's Mortem. I had one more example. Funny Games, yeah, where, yeah, yeah. where you have the filmmaker basically going, shame on you audience for participating in this via your scopophilic urge to watch violence. And it's like, Tarantino has this great quote in his book where he's like, yeah, of course we're here for the fucking violence. It's sexy. It's fun. Is that not okay? Of course we're here for the violence. Yeah, and so much of Flower of Flesh and Blood is about that sense of sexual sublimation through violence. You know, the guy smoking the cig at the end. And yeah, he's his... sitting on the yeah. bed with his lover... Post-coitally. Post-coitally smoking yeah. a cigarette. Like, yeah. it's right there in yeah. the text. It's like, 
we we have just watched porn. Yeah. And 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 I always call these films like when I when I talk about people what I used to do yeah. when I when I got started in the film industry I said, "Oh, I worked on gore porn movies." Because to me, gore porn is what these films are. It, yeah. It's exploiting the sexual desire to see explicit violence. And like we're seeing such a renaissance of that type of filmmaking now where a movie like Terrifier 2 can go and make 20 million at the box office when it's just a gore porn flick. It's like yeah. people are trying to claim that as elevated horror. That's fucking insane. It's not elevated horror. It's a gore porn movie. For the longest time, we've repressed them underneath like the mainstream cinema and now we're starting to see, probably thanks to the internet and thanks to the pandemic driving us all fucking crazy, this desire to come back to these types of films and go, yes, I can go and enjoy this. And it's like, a now it's a communal act as opposed yeah. to me having to like shelter my iPod video so like my classmates don't see that I'm a total fucking freak. Well, and that was another part of what always kept me from this stuff was like that sense of shame around it, that sense of having to sneak things, you know? When I would take like trauma movies home from Casablanca, I always felt like something about that black border just felt so porn adjacent to me that I felt like I had to like slip them in my guitar case when I went home. Like, and there's something so beautifully honest about that, that pornographic aspect where you can watch 10,000 CGI drones get blown away with guns, and that is sexual sublimation through violence. Whereas you have something like this, where this character is like this aesthetic transcendentalist poet who keeps commenting on his own sexual sublimation. And you get to experience that in a way that's like earnest and honest and emotional. Yeah, and I mean like the movie is reflexive in the point that it comes back around at the end where you're seeing the aftermath of this art that he's been creating, yeah. right? Where like the entire movie is building up to like, oh yes, the body has been like taken to the sum, like beyond the sum of its parts yeah. to just like, I guess, complete sublimation, if we want to keep using that word, <laughs> where we, we're, we're seeing it where it's like, okay, these hands are forming like a spiral of flowers and there's worms crawling in organs that are so detached from the body that you don't even know what yeah. body part it is anymore. It's tough and to it's, tell what you're looking at. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But but it's beautiful. Yeah. And, and it, it, it's shot beautifully. It's shot aesthetically. And it, it is clearly making a point about the fact that this thing that we deeply repress, this urge of violence can be artistic and can be beautiful. And and I mean, like, that's the great thing about like Hideshi Hino as an artist and coming from like his background as a mangaka is like, oh, I'm going to make this movie where I am like going full blown into this impulse towards showing the grotesque and showing yeah. the erotic grotesque. Yeah. One of the other things that I noted was uh, the character's samurai helmet. The, the fact that uh, this this very romantic, heroic sort of figure that at first you sort of think like, oh, like, I see subverting the figure of of samurai or whatever. No, this is the hero. This is the, the romantic aesthetic figure. This is the person who is our agent in this. And it is beautiful and it does come to this satisfying circular narrative for him. And it sort of underlies the inherent sort of violence, sexual urge in, in that heroic figure. Exactly. And, yeah. and and for the audience because because the only th there's three characters in the movie yeah we have the samurai the victim and then the the cameraman yeah because the cameraman is like interacted with as yes. a character and like obviously that's our surrogate as the audience yeah. and the entire movie is presented as a way of, of saying 
you're enjoying this. Yeah. You're going to keep watching yeah. because, you know, you're turned on and excited <laughs> by this like extreme violence that we're showing you. Yeah. And it, it, you know, it, it works well. And it's kind of interesting because we, we talk about all these ideas around the movie. And I think about like, why was I connecting with this when I was like 11 years old? Yeah. And like, to me, like I, I was taught, I had written this long article on like the American guinea pig films, mm. uh, AGP for sure. AGP, yeah. And um, the thing about AGP is that like I, I I had such a love for the first one? I didn't really follow up, but I, I watched the rest of them. I showed some clips during my Fantastic Fest show from them, but the the, the first one's really special because it's just trying to rekindle that feeling of Flowers of Flesh and Blood. It's like mm. a very direct American remake, and there's okay. a lot of interesting things to talk about in there that I'd like to get to when yeah. you and I decide to have AGP. And yeah. um, the, the the thing that's fascinating to me and what I highlighted when I was doing that review was talking about myself as an 11 year old and why I was connecting with these types of extreme gore mm. movies. And this was before I'd really came out. So I was kind of like talking in circles around my relationship to my own body within like this conversation. I came to this in, in hindsight when, when someone asked me like, hey, isn't it kind of fucked up you were watching this at that age <laughs> and like we're really into it? I was like, well, I was going through puberty and I was having an extreme reaction to my own body. I knew I was, I was, trans which meant i was different which i didn't know how to express because there wasn't really a lot of trans people that i could point to back then uh, i certainly didn't know any my parents were like weird white people and from rural <laughs> canada who didn't have any queer yeah. friends so i didn't like have any gateway to that world so like i was always worried because i was so different and fucked up that i was like I, I, it would be always threats all the time that I'd be sent off to an institution. Um, so, like, because of that, you talked about how, like, you were too scared to bring these movies home because you didn't want to get caught. Yeah. For yeah. me, there was kind of a shared, like, interest where, like, closeting my trans identity, yeah. the my outlet within that hiding was watching these extreme films where I could see, like, body horror. Like, yeah. that's why I connected yeah. with body horror. Like, I remember having a fight with my mom where I was screaming about Videodrome and describing the <laughs> vagina on James Wood's chest. And like, you don't know what kind of movies I watch, Mom. This is the thing I'm interested in. This guy has a vagina. Can you believe that? And it's like, yeah, like, I was, I was using body horror as an outlet to understand the own... I was facing inwards at my own body as it was changing. I was like losing my mind, right? Yeah, that's so interesting because like for me, my big thing during puberty was I had like a big anime phase and that was just like, I think just sort of total removal from the body where it was like, I'm going up here and I'm going to live in this like hyper real fantasy realm where I just fixate on these like cute girls in cute clothes and like live in this world that is so like far removed from my own that is like entirely representative. There's nothing real about it. And like that's the appeal and I'm just gonna like eat snacks and watch these cute girls do nothing for hours on end and pretend that they're my friends and that's what I'm gonna be able to do. That's what I'm gonna be able to do in lieu of like being the actual person that I wanna be. Uh, I'm just gonna disappear and fade into the background. Taking of course the example of every fucking like shut in probable egg um, that I was listening to online and their advice for how to go not be a person. Yeah, it, it's interesting how you were kind of we were both equally dissociating through like a relationship to the internet and cinema. Yeah. It was just, you were going in this direction that was um, 
dissociating through like anime and like like kind of seeing like nice girlhood type stuff yeah. that you could like escapism whereas yeah. to me it was like the gritty horrors of reality yeah. and i think that's really fascinating to kind of like catch us up to speed then i grew up like watching all these fucked up movies and really being invested in that world and eventually i ended up at a film festival that was being hosted in our hometown in calgary and i met a filmmaker named ryan nicholson he was an incredible mentor to me. He is a very problematic figure in terms of the types of movies he makes. Um, Ryan was the sweetest guy in the world, but oh boy, did he love killing one or two trannies in his movies. And uh, the, the clip I got in the most trouble for at Fantastic Fest was a clip from his movie, Gutter Balls. Before we get really into it, I just want to say, I met Ryan at this festival called Splatterfest in Calgary, and I was this plucky little, like, 15-year-old, and I went and talked to him, and I ended up recording an advertisement for his movie at the time, and I'll maybe, like, link in the show notes or something, but <laughs> I asked him, I said, if I ever come out to Vancouver, will you give me a job? And he said, you know what? Absolutely. I'll get you on set. So three years later, I graduate from high school, I go out to Vancouver and I get my first job on a movie set, which is in a little film called Collar. Now, our second film of the evening. Our second film of the evening, which um, I think was a lot harder for you to get through. Yeah, I, 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 I had a more mixed reaction, that's for sure. Flower of Flesh and Blood, I was like, I am all the way on board for this. This is my type of fucked up kinky shit. Yeah, Collar, I, I, I did have a slightly more, I guess, not difficult time with because I, you know, it's an exploitation movie. I know what I'm getting yeah. into. I, I I know what kind of like, you know, your sick lurid thrills hiding from behind parted fingers like and it delivers there. Yeah. Well, um, what's what's interesting to me is like and, and it, we'll chart this as we go through transgressive cinema because my whole idea for like at least the first part of this series we're calling Transpanic is I want to chart from the like sort of inception of like what people were exploring in transgressive film and trying to work its way into this like neo-transgressive movement that I've been trying to find from the last decade. And Collar was made in 2014. So it fits into this last decade of horror. And although it's like roots are more linked in like movies like Anthropophagus or like some of these like Italian nasty sort of like fucked up movies. Um, I think that comparing it to Guinea Pig is interesting because I also believe that it falls into this category of making a movie that's exploitation to which the audience is not condemned for participating in it. See, and that is the one point that I would disagree with you on. Because the plot of Caller is these two middle class kids go around filming bum fights and filming all the worst shit they can find until they find this giant man called Massive who goes around doing rapes and murders, who's a Satanist because his father, who was a priest, molested him, and who is this sort of Michael Myers figure who just creeps around in the shadows and is seemingly invincible. Uh, and he creeps around Vancouver's East End doing all sorts of rapes and murders, and these two kids follow him around filming them. To me, this is like, 
almost a patently obvious case of audience involvement where it's like these assholes are you and like the real cathartic revenge moment of the movie even more than when massive gets killed is when massive finally takes out the fucking cameraman like that's that's the moment for me that was like the the cheer you know yes and and he's us He's us. Yeah. You know, it, it's really funny because because you're describing the movie. Yeah. And I'm thinking back to like the Omni Message Bros conversation yeah. we were having earlier where that makes it sound way better than the movie actually is. <laughs> yeah, it's, 100%. It's, it's, it, you know, it's like a lot of underground horror movies mm. from this period where it's like kind of, I'm going to use the phrase mumble gore um, to Woo! describe this type of movie, which is like handheld. It's shot on like a black magic camera and it's like lots of like i did the lighting on the movie it's pretty good it looks pretty good um, yeah <laughs> and it was my first job okay yeah. um and it's it's a lot of scenes of people walking around alleyways on the downtown east side and then we cut to a very quick murder scene which all yeah. the effects were done by the same artist who I asked on that show if she, Michelle if she would do computer hearts. So mm. computer hearts would not exist without collar. Incredible. Um, so the thing is, I will disagree with you in terms of them being like strictly audience inserts because mm. there's a lot of monologues where they talk about like they're filming this because they have to, and there's like a whole monologue the one guy has at the mm. end where he's talking about why he has to film it. Yeah, and it's like. This is like, he's basically saying like, this is exploitation me. This is what I'm here for. Like, there's no judgment. I'm just shooting it because it's happening. I, I, I have no connection to you. I'm just enjoying it. And it's like, to me, it's not condemning the audience so much as giving them permission in this sense of being like, yeah, you're allowed to enjoy this. And then we enjoy seeing them get killed too. And it's kind of like interesting from this perspective of just like, yeah, we're, we're watching a gore porn flick. Every character we see on screen is going to get raped and murdered. And they do. I mean, we joked when we made the movie that it was going to be called mm. Rape Shack because half the movie is women being raped in this dirty old shack that was behind Ryan's house. Yeah. I don't know. At the same time, like, the character who says that line, I don't know you, I'm just here to enjoy it, is again framed as sort of the primary villain of the piece. Like, to me, it still has that, but it's almost, it almost takes it to a, like, parodic degree where the metaphor is so fucking obvious that it turns around and just means nothing again. And that's what like, I'm getting at. Yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah. Like, because yeah. the movie isn't trying to be smart. Yeah. It's trying to be a gore porn movie. Yeah. So, like, yeah. Yes, it's the most obvious thesis in the world, but I don't see like I don't see it being much different than the samurai turning to his cameraman in Flowers of Flesh and Blood. And it's like, remember, these movies are separated by like 20 years. Yeah. So that's just what the modern snuff film. I was really fascinated by how aggressively Vancouver caller is. Like yes. the the setting being the Lower East Side is such a such a distinct choice, and the idea to do an exploitation movie on the Lower East Side and then have the main characters be middle class kids fascinated by the violence of the Lower East Side is. Insane is some insane shit to pull. It's a good pitch. Uh, and, and who are who are most of the victims? Of the, I, I'm really excited to get into this with you. So I'll yeah. let you finish your thought because I've got like a pretty interesting underbelly to get into with yeah. all of this. My primary take uh, from the movie and what the movie was about, whether this is intentional or not, is about the craziness of the middle class gaze towards homelessness, where. 
feel like, you know, we both came from like steady households, you know, we, 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 we both had money growing up, like ish, back and forth. Uh, 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 you know, middle class generally. Yes, I'll, um, I'll give you middle class, steady household. I will not. Oh, no, will no, not no. Stay. Sorry, of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yes. That said, you know, middle class. Being middle class, you're conditioned to sort of have this view of homelessness based in like my life is very comfortable, but it's also semi precarious. This is a thing which could potentially happen to me as like a very distant possibility, but it's not really there. Well, and and yeah. so at the same time, it's made so invisible by like over policing and by the degree to which that shit is segregated and pushed away from mainstream society. And so you end up with this sort of a rational terror of homelessness where you like are like a little bit freaked out in a way that's very similar to the way that cis people look at trans people or the way that abled people look at disabled people where it's like oh God, it's an inherent that, disgust that could be me yeah and like i said whether it's intentional or not i could feel a lot of those feelings kind of getting worked through yeah like, like it's this, it's this, it's this um, weird self-reflective disgust right yeah and, and and yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting. But the thing about Collar yeah. is 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 it fails in the same way that a movie like when you get down to the subtextual framework of yeah. it, it fails in the same way that like a movie like Candyman fails. Mm -hmm. Which is that like if we look at like a traditional American horror film, this is Canadian obviously, yeah. but if you look at a traditional horror film, it's this idea of that like return of the repressed. Yeah. So if you were to have this crazy hulking homeless man. <laughs> the fact that all he all he does is kill mm. hookers yeah. and drug addicts and alcoholics and uh, pimps and all the people who populate the downtown east side, mm. the metaphor sort of falls apart because if you wanted to make a traditional horror film, he should be invading the suburban yeah. space. Yeah. Whereas in this case, we have these two white kids, yeah. middle class white kids, yeah. invading the downtown mm. east side and then yeah. egging on the homeless guy to do more murders. And in a way it's it's almost fascinating for that because it's almost saying like you're responsible for this yeah right like yeah. like that's what and makes it kind of fa interesting the repressed that is returning is the middle class gaze on homelessness yeah. it's not homelessness itself yeah. it's not the people who are actually living in those conditions it is the it's the watchers yeah is, and, and, and it's it's interesting because like the whole framework of the movie is Everyone on the downtown east side knows to avoid massive, the crazy Satanist cannibal. Yeah. And these kids keep trying to pull people into that orbit in order yeah. to, like, make it, like, set him off. And that's, like, <laughs> kind of fascinating. It's like, it's like, oh, this culture is established. Stay out of it. And then the second these two kids interlope into it, that's when the chaos begins. And it, that's what makes it interesting that all the victims in the film, with the exception of the two, like, middle-class kids, yeah. are other, like, downtown east side people, right? Yeah, and they're all sort of the responsibility of the middle-class kids that it happens. I think you just made me like this movie a lot more. I also get what you're saying about it not being the audience now, in the sense that if the kids with the cameras are the villains of the piece, then the, you know, the idea identifying characters are the characters that we end up with the drug user and the and the sex worker like yeah. those are the people we're actually with even though they're not the ones that we start with yeah. and even though 
the the film definitely leans hard into the tropes of what those kids the 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 watchers the way they would shoot and, and, this and stuff this is a great jumping off point yeah. because every good horror movie ends with this idea of the that whatever you're pressing is defeated and we return to a new normal but like changed by what we experienced yeah. and the fascinating thing about this and this is Something I really want to get on a rant about. <laughs> okay. It, it, when it comes to underground film of yeah. the 2010s. Okay. Um, what's really fascinating to me is, for all intents and purposes, the two main characters of the piece are the cop and her pregnant wife. Yeah. And you see this lesbian relationship yeah. where they talk about how, like, you know, the trouble of, like, getting a sperm donor and this and that. Yeah. And they both get murdered. Yeah. So that the cis hetero couple can then take their baby <laughs> yeah! and decide to start a normal suburban <laughs> life and it's like the thing about underground cinema of the 2010s is what i saw creeping in and why i got out of there yeah was i was seeing this sort of fascist undertone mm. and i don't use that term lightly yeah um the the reason why i i go into this sort of like fascist argument and we'll get into it with some of the movies of the neo-transgression movement we're going to cover yes um if we go into like the mpc film festival and all the shit that i yeah. want to kind of cover as like these broad topics the thing about collar because it's like one of the first movies coming out in this sort of like neo-transgressive space of the 2010s mm. is we're starting to see these films where the victims are predominantly minorities or like, you know, the less desirables of yeah. society. Like, yeah. honestly, I'm just shocked that Ryan didn't kill a tranny hooker in this movie. He asked me if I would play a tranny <laughs> hooker in this movie and I was like, I'm not ready to put on a dress. I, <laughs> well, why do you want me to play a tranny hooker, Ryan? Yeah. Um, but I, I didn't feel comfortable. And so so there could have been... I'm a 19-year-old boy. What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, I'm... Oh my God, was I ever a 19-year-old boy? <laughs> Um, but like, it, it's interesting because, because when we get into more movies from like yeah. this period, you start to see this weird creeping in of like right wing reactionary politics. And yeah. like, this is a reactionary movie for yeah. sure, which like even us talking about like what the, the, the primary victims are yeah. and like how the movie views these people and all this stuff. Like yeah. it is reactionary and yeah. I'm curious because it's like, you're going to make a movie in Vancouver's downtown east side. Yeah. Doing it like this is the most exploitive way to do it. Yes. It's it's also absolutely. the most reactionary way to do it. Yeah. And at that point, does doing the most reactionary thing, has it circled around in the 2010s to being the most politically transgressive thing? I mean, Angela Nagel's book, Kill All Normies, is about this, about the, like, swap over from transgression as a language uh, of left-wing politics to being a language of right-wing politics. And that is, you know, that's a common kind of meme that gets passed around, is that whole, like, the left can't meme thing from, like, 10 years ago or whatever. And that point was always sort of boring to me just in the sense that like reactionary viewpoints like exclusionary viewpoints the only reason why they're viewed as transgressive at all is because everything's been so conglomerated into these few corporate outlets that being exclusionary just limits your audience 
Like, it's all about, at the end of the day, you will sell fewer tickets getting into the door if you say, you know, no this group, no that group, no etc. Doesn't make any of those exclusionary things, like, good or acceptable. It, it just, it doesn't make them interesting either, I guess. Yeah, and, and, and there definitely was a growing aspect to that in how the culture around these underground movies was starting to, like, formulate in the early 2010s. Yeah. And it, it was, like, weird being, like, the lone transsexual making a movie like Computer Hearts and trying yeah. to market it to this crowd because it did stick out. It was so yeah. fucking different than all these other films that were being made. And I, I really think it came from, like, my, like, ideological background. Like, I was, you know, I was a terminal 4chan user. Yeah. Um, that's how I financed... Uh, computer hearts was through 4chan yeah. but um i was known as being like the tranny faggot feminist on yeah. 4chan so yeah. like i mean i was clear about what my politics were and then that did not fit into the box of underground cinema yeah um which is interesting because the underground cinema i grew up with like guinea pig for example feels extremely apolitical like the yeah. things it's dealing with are stuff that you can read to it within like the psychoanalytic realm like yeah. we're talking about jessants and i was talking about young and lacan yeah. earlier and, and freud and castration anxiety and oh the transcendentalism yeah transcendentalism yeah. and yeah. it's like you know even going back before that you have like you know like some of the coolest, most interesting underground films are like movies like John Waters' is doing, yeah. where it's like clearly the politics are kind of like it's apolitical on a left wing bent. Does that yeah. make sense? Like, yeah. like it, it's kind of doing the poking fun at everybody thing, but yeah. there's you can tell that John Waters is a huge fag behind like what you're watching. And that's inspiring everything that's happening on screen and the, and the lens through which you're viewing it. I feel like this whole project that we're doing is centered around a nostalgia almost for that point at which transgression was a left-wing cultural language. Wanting again to feel that sense of, I'm a freak, I'm disgusting, I enjoy disgusting things, here it is, hello world, you know? Taking all of your clothes off and rubbing your shit all over yourself and being like, it's radical performance art. Well, this, but but what's this really, helps the world, this the actually. This is the thing that's fascinating about that, though, is because if you look at, like, what we call the actual cinema of transgressions movement yeah. from the late 80s, you know, I my, my one of my buddies did this big interview series where he was talking with a lot of these guys in the last couple of years during the pandemic. And he's talking with Nick Zed, may he rest in peace, and yeah. like Richard Kern. And these guys who were at the forefront of these transgressive movies that were about like the effects of police brutality and trying to like push to the limits of what we could represent in terms of sex and like trying to reclaim like Nazi imagery and all this like yeah. crazy shit. They were all Trump supporters. They were oh, they, yeah. like they came fully around because they were always anti-establishment. Yeah. So so if you're anti-establishment, eventually you're going to become like a reactionary in the sense of like politics always kind of move left. So at a certain point, you kind of like get turned around. Does that make sense? Or 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 we can say it's the thing we talked about earlier, which is this unmasking where it's like, oh, you were racist the whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the mask off moment. <laughs> and, and yeah, I mean, uh, again, I think I just miss uh, the, not even miss the point at which, because there is no sort of halcyon era for this or anything. It, it's just that you want to be completely self-indulgent and completely self-expressive while also doing something that feels somewhat good for the world and that isn't like a fundamental corruption of your soul. And 
that's sort of where we're all trying to find meaning in, in, in all of this stuff. And that's why I like shit like what you just put me through it is that it, it it lets you explore those things in a way that is playful and that makes you kind of feel like oh i'm one of those people i'm one of those people on the dark side i'm on the outside you know there is a lot more sense of relation for me being being trans to stuff that just expresses a sense of otherness more so than stuff that explicitly is like queer cinema. A lot of that stuff is, you know, softened to the point or so overoccupied with being good representation, doing the right thing, making the world a better place that there's just no place for that, for that, for that dirty well, heart that you're trying to get out. What was interesting to me was like when I was growing up, yeah. I wasn't seeing trans women represented no, not at all. even in the queer movies. No, but 100%. with the exception of like the underground shit, I was yeah. seeing like divine in fucking yeah. pink flamingos and female trouble. Or I was watching like trauma movies where they'd like, kill some fucking tranny hooker yeah. or like Ryan's movies where it's like, oh yeah, the trans girls can get her dick cut off. But it was like, whoa, there's trans girls in this movie. That's yeah. crazy. I'm obsessed with this. So it's like, it's interesting because, because of the reactionary view, especially of these like movies from like the, the late aughts to the early 2010s, we're, we're seeing more like trans victims because it's like, yeah, of course, those are the dredges of society. We're going to, like, show, show them who's boss with our fucked up underground horror movies. <laughs> but then it's, like, for me, as this, like, young, closeted, like, trans woman, it was, like, where the fuck else was I going to find this representation, even if it's yeah. bad representation? 100%. Like... You know, the only representation I really had was like the other fucking forum freaks talking about anime online. And my view towards them was always this sense of like, ooh, that's dangerous and weird, but I'm sort of jealous of you, but mm, it's a little far out. And as it sort of gained, gained more and more mainstream acceptance and representation, it sort of hit a point where it was like, where it was like, oh, that jealousy is just desire, is just a thing that's always been there. Oh shit, oh fuck, oh no, what do I do? Yeah, and like my first exposure to like trans people not in movies was posting about these films on 4chan yeah. and seeing all the fucking <laughs> trans girl Nazi LARPers and being oh, like, God. like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. <laughs> So I mean, like, it, it's fascinating. It, it it is fascinating how like, like to me, my development with my transness is so interlinked to underground cinema. Yeah, and I, I think that's the whole desire of this experiment I'm subjecting you to by yeah. saying, "Hey, Aoife, you haven't watched all of these like fucked up movies. Come yeah. watch Salo with me, and we'll talk about it. Yeah, it's kind of fun, and um." I guess we'll I'm going see. through your coming of age now. Yeah. See, this is my 26 year this, old. This is my trans coming of age yeah. story. 26 year old Aoife is now getting to the level of uh, what? 14 year old Louise. Not even 12. 12 year old yeah, Louise. 12 -year -old I'm 12. Louise. What is this? I'm finally coming to, yeah, to the level of emotional maturity of you at 12. It's yeah. Perfect. It's, it's great. And we get to, we get to grow as women together. <laughs> 
for as long as we possibly can. For as long as they'll let us. Yeah, I mean, we'll see if uh, <laughs> any audience actually, like, appreciates this conversation. Or if um, we appreciate it, or if we put it online, or if anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I, I mean, I guess let's move into uh, to thoughts on why why did you put these two together specifically yeah okay so that's a good question so i mean for me i wanted to chart um my own personal development yeah. in terms of like my relationship to underground film and like there is more things i will show you that i've worked on that are in this underground film bracket yeah. um because like the weird thing is that i was involved in quite a bit of the underground film scene and my tentacles stretch into a lot of fucked up areas that I'm excited to introduce you to. Um, but why guinea pig to and collar specifically? I think that to me, they highlight where underground film started and where it ended up. Mm. And now we're 10 years removed from collar and I'm very curious to talk about what's going on now in like 2023 when it comes to transgressive film. I've been doing a lot of writing on neo-transgression and, yeah. and definitely like, as I said, Mumblegore kind of led way into this much more fascinating homogenization of all these reactionary ideals, but also like pulling in elements of performance art and... Also, the big one, which isn't a part of Collar yeah. or Guinea Pig 2, okay. is the relationship to the internet. Okay. And the way in which your persona on the internet is linked to the art you create. And I'm excited to get deeper into these conversations later. But for now, I think it's fun to just say, here's where Underground Film started, um, where people would trade around tapes of guinea pig too and be like, isn't this fucked up? Yeah. Uh, to like Caller, where it's like, now you can get a movie like this, like sort of financed. Um, it doesn't cost a lot of money to make a movie. Um, so you can go out and make a fucked up movie with your friends and have a great time. And then I put it on for my friend 10 years later <laughs> since making it. And you've got like a woman splayed on this piss soaked bed yeah. with her pussy fully out and, and getting like raped with a meat hook. And you're like, okay. Yeah. I think I know Louise a little better now. Yeah, exactly. And you know, you haven't gotten me to give up on you yet. We'll see if you succeed at some point. Yeah. Maybe I mean, when we listen back to this, that'll be it, when I finally am like. It's wonderful because like I'm on a quest for cancellation and the best thing I can do is try to get canceled by my best friend. Yeah. That's the first step. And I've been putting together my case, but I just, I can't quite pin it down. So I'm going to need one that's really, really going to settle Settle the score on on should Louise be canceled forever, locked away in a box, thrown yeah. to the bottom of the well, ocean. The, the, the secret is the reason we're doing this podcast is because I'm a really bad person. And I <laughs> my bad person impulses mean that I need to like share that like misanthropic urge with with you. Well, and and to be a bad enough person to start a podcast. That's the other yeah. thing. Well, I'm only here because I need it for my voice training. <laughs> yeah, you need it for your voice training. I need to actually make something for the first time in like two years. So it, it's it's perfect. It's perfect. It works out for everybody. Easy content for the content mill. Well, I think that wraps it up for today. Yeah. Um, 
Next week we'll be catching up because uh, I'm flying out to Chicago for a particular movie screening, and I think that's gonna give us a lot to talk about on our next episode. I'm so excited for what I'm sure is going to be a pleasant, innocuous trip that will make no one mad at you and will cause no kind of online controversy, Louise. Thank you.